Welcome to the Red Chair. Today we have Kelly Purdue with us. Good to see you. Good welcome to see you to too. Indico. Yeah. And welcome to Portugal. Thank you've you very moved, much. You've moved recently. Yes. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, my wife and I decided to kind of give our kids a expansive view of the world. Um, and so you chose Portugal. We, we looked around, um, started the golden visa process, and it is a process. It's a process. Um, a couple of years ago, um, and finally got the final stamp uh, on our bio, on my biometrics meeting Amazing. in May, so we could process through the summer of figuring out the schools and do all those types of things. So good, good. You're very welcome. So tell us a little bit about you. Who's who are you? Where do you come from? <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I'm Kelly Perdue. Um, my uh, my background is I graduated from West Point in the United States. It's the it's the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, served active world duty. World famous. World famous. It's it's known. There have been a few good you know well known people who've attended that you know university. Um, and then I was a military intelligence officer, completed airborne and ranger training, and served active duty um, for three years. Where? Uh, I was stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey, California with the 7th Infantry Division, which is a light infantry division. Mm -hmm. And that was um, during the first Iraq war. Um, we, didn't, we did not deploy, um, but we were to, you know, provided a support and ready to deploy in other parts of the world if anything happened. Did not, mm -hmm. did not um, deploy. And then when I got out of the military, I went to law and business school at UCLA started my entrepreneurial activities while I was in that four-year program, mm -hmm. raised money, started my first company. And over this was the... mid-90s? Yes. Late 90s? Was, this was 1994. Um, so in the Los Angeles ecosystem, <laughs> it was very, very nascent at the time. There were like two VC funds, um, no incubators, no accelerators to no. speak of. No. And uh, I started entrepreneuring and I met the rest of the, you know, the entrepreneurs that were working out of Los Angeles. And it was like, you know, the redheaded stepchild of San Francisco, right? It was nothing like, cause all the VCs and all the tech talent and everything. And over the course of the next, uh, 15 years, um, entrepreneured and started meeting these other entrepreneurs that I liked and could scrape together pennies to make a nickel. And I would start doing early seed, uh, angel investing, mm -hmm. uh, as an individual. Um, my co-founder for Moonshots Capital now, Craig Cummings, he's also a West Point grad, also a serial entrepreneur. He was in D.C. doing the same thing there that I was doing in L.A. But we, you knew each other. We knew each other. Um, we actually met. He'd finished his Ph.D. at Columbia and was teaching at West Point when I won this thing called The Apprentice. So I won a reality show. Um, Tell us all about that. Well, well before you go to The Apprentice, <laughs> which, which made you really famous... You know, you started setting up companies and being an entrepreneur. What kind of companies did you create? Uh, most of the companies that I worked on um, and that I developed were direct-to-consumer, either marketplaces or individual uh, services, software services. Um, some of them were successful and some of them were learning experiences. <laughs> and I think the, uh, they both provide good background for being Absolutely. able to to help entrepreneurs now when I'm in an advisory or, or board role um, with the companies that we invest in. And um, I literally on a whim decided to go to the 
casting call at UCLA's business school um, that the casting agency had put on for this. For The Apprentice. For The Apprentice. Um, and this was, which year was this? Uh, this was 2004. 2004. 2004. So I'd been entrepreneuring for a while, investing for a while, and uh, I went to the casting call and acted a little crazy. I figured, you know, 300 guys in suits, you got to stand out somehow. So I answered some questions during the process, a little offbeat and was aggressive and a little bit of my personality. And <laughs> they asked me to come back for a, a follow on. I made it through their pretty amazing process. They did IQ tests, personality tests, interview with a psychologist um, and a whole bunch of other dynamic environments. And then they picked... I mean, if they did IQ tests to people that go on TV normally, I mean, most people would fail for sure. So <laughs> I didn't say they were looking for uh, the best performance on any of those. Um, the Apprentice was definitely a designed mosaic of different psycho slash demographics, but maybe some psychos. <laughs> but Particularly it, the hosts? It has to be entertaining. Otherwise, it's going to be on... You yes, know, PBS, and it'll be a Harvard Business School review test, and the yes. general American public's not going to be excited no. about watching it. Um, so I think they probably pick, I don't know, four or five people that they think could win, and the rest they fill out with the demographics of the United States to get everybody to view and watch. It's pretty, pretty smart. Um, Burnett's very good at, Mark Burnett's very good at what he does. And he uh, the, the producer. Yeah, Mark Burnett's the producer of that and Survivor and a dozen other really well-known shows. And who was the host? Um, interestingly, uh, there is no host for The Apprentice, unlike Survivor. Um, the uh, contestants tell the story. Now, I think you're alluding to, you're fired. <laughs> exactly. um, my former boss, Donald Trump, is the star of The Apprentice for sure. Right. So he wasn't really the host. So what, what was his role? I remember um, seeing it briefly. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Not, so, so, so basically, um, Donald gives a task. Let's say it's in the morning of the first day, and the teams are split in two. They split us men and women, and then swapped one man and woman to lead the other team, just to see what would happen. And um, then the, the the two teams go about completing the task in New York City, where we where we were. Um, there's a winner and a loser based on some typically objective criteria, like how much money you make on a task or whatever it might be. And then the losing team goes to the boardroom. And in that boardroom, you fight for your life because Donald is judge and jury. Um, he usually has two helpers of whoever they might be a star. It might be somebody from his organization. Right. And he hears all the arguments and they show clips of the, because everybody's filming during the task. Right. And... If you were not performing or hiding, um, you would be called out and he would fire somebody, at least one person, every boardroom. And that's how the cast dwindles. And when one team gets lopsided, they shuffle them and do everything else. And right. that's right. that's right. the show. Right. And at the end, um, there's the final two contestants. And the interesting part of The Apprentice was it's a live finale. So eight weeks before, because they have to do post-production, um, you're, you're arguing in the boardroom And then all of a sudden, everything stops. Cameras turn off. You go home and go you wait eight own. weeks and you come back. And our, our live finale was in the Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. Full audience, you know, NBC, primetime, three hours, about 30 million people 
watch my finale, so half a Super Bowl. And so you were in the finale with how many other contestants? Just one. Just one. Yeah. And you won. And I won. <laughs> so you became super well known. It was it was pretty amazing, you know, that 15 minutes of fame that most people exactly. get. Mine lasted 15 months or so. <laughs> so I worked for Donald in New York. Um, so he basically hired you into his own organization. Correct. And um, you had never met Donald. And I had had zero real estate experience. Right. So it was much more of an apprenticeship of watching and learning and seeing how he operates because they did offer me to stay on at the end of the 15 months. I'd published a book. I hosted another show on the military channel called GI Factory. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that I used that fame period focused on the stuff that I, are important to me, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship, and military right? And helping people understand that the military does really help develop leadership skills. For sure. And those leadership skills have applicability in business. That's actually thematically how we look at what we do with Moonshots Capital, right? We invest in what we call extraordinary leadership. About a third of our 200 million AUM has gone into companies that have military veterans as part of the founding team. Some of those are dual use where there's, you know, some form of uh, government and commercial application. Right. Um, but a lot of them are, you know, we're, we're agnostic as to sector. Mm -hmm. So how did the, the idea of creating Moonshots Capital came about? So my partner, Craig Cummings, and I um, had been in our cities. I was in L.A. He was in D.C. We were entrepreneuring and helping entrepreneurs. So old school angel investing was... You know, oh, Safan, I really like what you're doing. There's good chemistry here. I know I can help you. I've got a nice little network. I'll write a $25,000 check and I'll get nine buddies to do the same, to send checks. And then your cap table grows significantly. And everybody's asking you questions all the time. This is before syndicates were, you know, right. available or popular. Yeah. And um, so Craig was one of my calls in DC, said, Hey, I got a hot deal. Just send me the check. Don't ask questions. And he was doing the same thing in DC. And we started to like, how we were both thinking about investing. Um, while he was entrepreneuring, I put money and raised about 300 grand of angel money to put into his company. I went on the board. We sold that company to Daimler Mercedes. Mm -hmm. Craig moved to Austin, where their headquarters is, and went on their corp dev team. And we'd probably had 50 to 60 angel deals that we'd done, not all together, but we'd seen and been working on. I'd been investing since 2004. He'd been investing a, a little bit later since 2011. And in 2014, we decided to start running syndicates. Naval of AngelList got a no action letter from the SEC that allowed for a lead angel running a syndicate to take fees and carry. Right. Kind of bypassing, you know, ha you know having to have a license, a broker-dealer mm -hmm. license. Mm -hmm. Not bypassing, but for a lot of reasons it made sense and they wanted to spur more Right. In investment in early stage. And we'd already been doing that effectively, but not getting paid for it in any way. So we started running syndicates. And since 2014, we've deployed about $50 million into syndicates. Um, and we use that syndicate vehicle in two ways. Microfund, like our fund one was 20, fund two was 36. And we're investing out of fund three now, but those are very small funds right. in the US market. Yes. And You know, if I meet you and you're considering taking money from me or a, a much bigger funded fund, 
you know, my comment to that of why it's not an issue is when we hit our allocation in a fund, like I can't invest more than 15% out of a fund because it's a diversification point. Yes. Well, I can use the syndicate vehicle to allow our LPs to continue in, to invest in a winner. Right. So I don't abandon you after two checks as an entrepreneur. So that syndicate vehicle is super useful for us in that way. Separately, we've developed pretty extensive networks. And so we get access and allocation to some really neat companies. Um, some that we've invested in over time have been like Slack, uh, Robinhood, Carta, Grub Market. There are a few that are, you know, very well-known very names well. that are growing and arguably closer to a liquidity event. Mm-hmm. But we'll get a $1 million, $2 million, $5 million allocation. And our LPs really like having the ability that, to, that opportunity. to invest later. So that, you know, that, that syndicate vehicle started in 2014. Mm-hmm. The problem with the syndicate vehicle for us is I'm, I meet you, Stefan, you're a killer entrepreneur. This is your second or third business that you're going to build. And you know about Craig and I and moonshots and you want us on the cap table and you say, well, how much do I put you down for? I go, uh, somewhere between 500 and 3 million let me get back to you in two weeks. And you're like, ah, well, if you can hurry up, but I'm, I've got to fill out my round. So Craig and I understood that we needed to raise a committed fund. Right. And that's when we evolved into Moonshots Capital committed fund structure. We raised a $20 million fund one. Which year, which year did you do that? Uh, that was 2017 vintage. 17. Yeah. And we deployed that 20 million into 14 companies. Um, It changes every month, but this month with PitchBooks rankings, we're in the top quartile for Fund One, so that, that's a good thing. Um, and we have a couple of you know fund makers that are going in in in, in that in that fund, and we're excited about it. Um, we then raised a thirty-six million dollar Fund Two mm-hmm. Vintage twenty twenty, um, and we're excited about that portfolio. Um, there are sixteen companies in that company, so we're are these U.S. companies uh, currently. All of our fund investments are U.S. companies. Part of the other reason that I came to Portugal was to look at and understand the European market, but specifically Portugal's got an amazing tech ecosystem. And it was amazing. Like the first week here, I met you. Um, I got into a group um, with Malti from Bitcraft. Yes. It's got, you know, I, I went to this little lunch, I thought, in Casa de Guia, and it was... 30 unbelievable entrepreneurs and investors from around the world living here who live here. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And so that also helped in the decision making for like, this was a great place to be. Right. And so over the years, you've seen lots of entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur yourself. Have things changed over the last 20 years? You think the entrepreneurs now are different? It's interesting because the uh, makeup of an entrepreneur from Like, and this is what evolved Craig's and our decisioning on, on how we were going to invest. Um, technology continues to accelerate, right? So the speed at which a technology gets into market, gets adoption and impacts that an industry is so fast now that becoming a sector focused or technology focused VC did not make sense for us. We thought You know, when we decided to have the committed funds, the committed fund also forces you to have a theme. 
because L- LPs like to know what they're investing in and they need to create some diversification as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we went for late seed, right? Approaching a million in annual recurring revenue. So there was something we could help, something we could, you know, apply our experience no, to. Yeah. Um, second is pretty much sector agnostic. And the reason for that was we looked at the 70 investments we'd made up to when we got the fund structure set up. And when we did a regression analysis on what was the factor we could control for at the time of investment mm-hmm. that resulted in the best outcome it was the quality of the leadership team. And that's become even more important today with the speed at which technology moves because you have to be flexible, right? You have to have a strong conviction, loosely held, if that makes sense, because, you know, we want our founders to have some element of coachability. We don't want them to do what we say because then we're running the company and neither one of us want to do that anymore. But we want to know the founder heard us and is listening to our experience and what we've seen in the past and how that's impacted things, takes it into account and then decides, makes their decision. And then we'll support them completely on that as long as we understand that they heard us. So I think that the, um, the founders that we are looking at are incredibly smart, incredibly coachable, a massive thirst for continuing to learn. If they're kind of completely closed off with blinders on, they will have to be lucky to win. Because, I mean, we saw 5,000 companies come over the transom for our 16 investments in Fund 2. The numbers are staggering, right, in terms of the people that want to build businesses. But when we find that right mix of, you know, these 10, we look at 10 leadership principles and when that right mix is there. And, and then we overlay a normal VC analysis, right? Size of market. Of course. How does our network assist? What can we do to, you know, a lot of our uh, LPs are, you know, serial entrepreneurs themselves. So that network's important for being able to help those founders succeed. But Absolutely. we really want to create a difference with them. Um, I think the everybody's seen a little bit of the cycle, like in LA, at least in the early days, um, Founders were very focused on building business with sound unit economics. And a lot of the hype or the bubble was more located up north yes, in Silicon Valley. There were no unit economics. <laughs> yeah, it was a let's own the entire market and then figure out the business model. Exactly. Right. It's like let, let's grow fast. Um, and we've seen that happen again and burst to where everybody's gone back to unit economics. So we've tried to focus on our founders and our investments in deals where there are sound unit economics. And when we invest in late seed with a million to two and a half million dollar check of a two to $5 million round, we want that money for that round to last 24 to 36 months. And since they're already at a million in annual recurring revenue, if, you know, and on their pro forma to calculate that 24 to 36 months, we grind down the projections on the revenue and we remind them of all the costs that are going to come up that they're not expecting the normal, you know, entrepreneur discussion. And when we get to agreement on that plan, first of all, plans never hit ever, not never, once never, in 115 companies it. we've invested in something <laughs> changes. Right. And we know that, but if you don't have that plan, there's nothing to make decisions against. Oh, that's right. Um, so, so that's an important process that we go through again with getting to understand that founder that we're investing in. 
And, you know, that 24 to 36 months of runway has to get them to operating metrics that could allow for an additional round of financing to grow. Or if something bad happens, pandemic, you name it, they they can cut costs and not be 100% dependent on raising another round of financing. That's, That's how we've gone about it since inception. That's the kind of founders that we like. Um, we have hit, you know, we have hit unicorns and in, in that have gone crazy and got great, fantastic market adoption. But again, um, that extraordinary leadership of the founder we're looking for, and I'll, I'll give you a good example. The um, so so the military veterans that we invest in, right? Their prior job was keeping our sons and daughters safe in war, wartime, and those those soldiers take that responsibility like it's incredibly important. It's like the most synchrosync thing that there Absolutely. is. They end up treating our invested dollars the same way. They feel personally responsible. And I'm not saying that that can't exist, that empathy or that feeling can that right. feeling of respect can't exist with someone else. I'm just saying it's But sometimes front, it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't because <laughs> they just haven't been in a position of responsibility before. No. no. And they treat, you know, our invested dollars with that same amount of respect. Yes, respect, and yes. It's powerful. Respect for capital, respect for your investors. It's it's powerful. I think partially in the last few years, particularly in the bubble years, I think a lot of young entrepreneurs just thought it was just free money that they could spend to, uh, kind of in a in a casino, right? And maybe they'll hit jack, jackpot or maybe not, right? 100%. I think, I think that was very detrimental to the industry. And it's, it's basically the VC's fault uh, to let that happen, of course. So the, uh, it, it's interesting because um, the ecosystem now, like we've talked about, it's hard to raise money for a fund. I think it's, I think it's one of the hardest things to do. And that's Absolutely. having gone to West Point, Ranger School, working for Donald Trump, like raising a fund is hard to it's do. It's even harder. It's hard. <laughs> um, so I think that reduces, it, it could, it should increase, but it kind of reduces the empathy of our founders trying to raise money for their very specific business that's got exactly. specific things. I'm like, come on, this should be easy. Yes. Um, but I remember that it's was hard. More capital for, for startups and for funds. Yes. By far, right? I, I think over the last three to four years of a cycle, you know, thousands of VCs got funded who, yeah. yes, you need to have rookies at everything, but I think there were a bunch of funds that got founded that just don't know anything really about no. One, investing, so that sourcing and selection process, and two, helping that founder succeed. And that's like, you know, it looks like we pick really well, but I think part of our picking, again, is that coachability is founders who are going to let us help them. So the helping after the investment is as important, sometimes more important than actually picking the right company. So it's this chicken or egg, like, I don't know if we pick well or if we help a lot, but doing them together... Yes, and I and Maximum. I would add that you also need to know how to manage a fund, right? Which is not the same thing as picking companies either, right? It's Correct. So it's also another type of skill that not everybody has or studied or or developed, right? It, yeah, it is. It is hard to learn, hard to uh, learn. and it's hard. It's hard to do, and you have to do it while you're also picking, Investing, helping, coaching, <laughs> raising, money. raising more it's, funds. It, yeah. But it's but it's the by far the best job in the world, I think. Like yes, I saw, it's, I think we're very lucky. Super we lucky. love it. Um, so, and and what are the things that you've seen that don't make sense uh, in terms of behavior? When things go wrong, why did they go wrong? 
so I've seen um, a few different problems that have existed over time. I think some founders become enamored with fundraising mm. and think, they work for the fundraising, right? They, 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 they think that that's almost an end yes. to itself. Um, and the only thing that matters is building a sustainable business. Yes, their number one job is to sure that there's gas in the tank, right? They can't run out Absolutely. of money, but right. that's not the end. Um, so, so I think that's, that can be problematic. Um, fundraising or hitting a valuation, right? I think this was very typical. You know, you want to hit a certain valuation and, and you work for that, which doesn't really make sense, right? You should work for your customers eventually and for your product. 100%. If you're delivering for your customer, you're going to have a business and everything else will work itself out. Yes, Absolutely. you need expertise and yes, you need to figure it out, but it can work itself out. Um, the other piece that's interesting is because of the inflation that occurred as associated with valuations and everything that was going on. I think first time founders uh, believe that their value is significantly higher than it should be. And that doesn't stop at the seed because there were a lot of inexperienced investors giving them money. Yeah. The problem is going to, is in the fallout that's coming. It's already started, but yes. it's coming yes. getting to a series a is a whole yeah, different animal now with, with, with real VCs. It's, I think this problem is bigger in the US. I mean, yeah. because here you don't have such strong angels and syndicates. So, so it's like the non-professional part of the industry is not here. Not, Got it. not as much. Yep. Right? yep. So that would be helpful. It's helpful. The fallout yes. should be less. Less. Yes. But the number of funded companies that it arguably should, should not been have been funded. Huge. And I think that is going to domino back up into all of the funds that arguably don't know what they're doing or how to help after they make the investment so that over the next two years, there's going to be a massive fallout of a much, much higher percentage of companies going for A's are not going to get their A. Sure. And then a significant number of funds are not going to be make able it. to raise a second fund no. or return any capital to their investors. That's right. That's right. Well, Kelly, great to have you in Lisbon. Thank you. I'm sure <laughs> we're going to do a few investments together. Um, all the best in Portugal and great to have you. Obrigado. Thank you.